great song. Father, thank you for a chance to look into your word tonight, Lord. We thank you that you come and seek us, Lord. If that were not true, no one would ever find you. So we thank you, Lord, that you pursue us. This is what the good shepherd does. And so we praise you for that, and you can hear it in our singing, Lord. We're grateful for that. Lord, we thank you for your word. May it now strengthen us and encourage us, Lord, as we look into it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to go back and finish chapter 9 of Genesis. If you have your Bibles, uh, take them out and let's look at Genesis chapter 9. Uh, we went through all of 8 last time and into 9 a little bit, uh, but I want to recap a little of this. Because there's so much truth there to learn from. Uh, and, and let me set the setting again. I, uh, when I study the book of Genesis and even all of the Pentateuch in a lot of ways, uh, it's important to rethink through who's writing this, who's he writing to, and what's the situation they're in. That's the way we always, it's good hermeneutics, is how we come to the text before we run to application on everything. So here's the setting. You remember the setting, right? They are somewhere on the Sinar plain. They are about ready to go into the land of Canaan. Most likely they have been through their wandering of 40 years. The older generation has died off because of their disbelief in God's word. And God sets Moses' pen to paper and he inspires every jot and tittle through him as he begins to write down the Pentateuch for the nation of Israel to be strengthened. That's the context of the book of Genesis. It wasn't written when it all happened. And so here's Moses writing to the nation, writing this great work down by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, moving him along as this nation is looking into this uh, this land that God has promised them, maybe possibly with fear and trembling. And God pins the Noadic flood to them. Are you worried about those guys? Because I drowned the whole world. I mean, think about that. Would that not encourage you as you're sitting there thinking, we're going to go in and take this land, and the Bible was written so I would understand that God is all-powerful. So that's the setting. We have to remember that setting. Now, it is certainly a true story. These are the events that took place. God uh, wrote these down through Moses. But it, it is important to remember that. And so I want you to think about that as we go through this, as this nation is strengthened. Now, four thoughts tonight, real quickly. God's covenant with his creation. Look at verses 8 and 10, chapter 9. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Go, be, excuse me, now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, the be the ev and every beast of the earth with you, and all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. What a scene that says. Notice in verse 8, God spoke to Noah and his sons. And God's speaking to the few humans that are left on this post-flood earth. Everyone else is dead. There's eight of them. And God's talking to them. And what a, what a scene here. Then God spoke. I think they had, I think God had their attention, didn't he? 
Can you imagine being the only ones left and God's talking to you? God's power had been clearly demonstrated. They watched his power. God did exactly what he said he would do. He told them, I'm going to wipe out the earth. You're going to build an ark. You're going to get in it. I'm going to save everybody in it. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. He didn't shift left or right. And everything that had the breath of life, breath of life in its nostrils that was not on the ark was dead. Everything that was living outside of a couple of birds that flew away were all right there with Noah. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? The judge had acted and those who were saved by God's choice alone were standing there before him listening. That's a pretty neat picture. Verse 9, he says, Now behold, I myself. So God is here now going to renew this covenant that he's made with man. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to renew this with you. And I myself are going to say this. And so there's this covenant promise that's given here and is not dependent upon man. This covenant is not based on man. And notice how he says this, I myself. And I think this is where maybe some translations do just a little better. The NASB uses the I myself here. And what it, clearly in the Hebrew, I looked at it today, and, I, and he, the word, the pronoun I stands alone, but then the participle and verb all are in first singular. So what he's trying to do is says, this is emphatic. This is not based on anybody else. I myself, I'm established in this covenant. Because you can't depend on man. <laughs> right? We'll see that shortly. Man will sin Soon, so, so here he says, Behold, I myself am going to establish this covenant with you. Me. This is what I'm going to do. And notice the covenant is given to all those whom God graciously chose to spare in their future generations. He says this, With you and your descendants after you, that'll be us too, right? In some shape or form, we're all descendants of Noah. And with every living creature that is with you. And so God looks at everything that comes out of this ark. Now remember, the ark represents, boy, what a picture of Christ. One door into the Father, Christ. Hold all, if you're in Christ, you're above judgment. Everything in that, that group that God chose, both man and beast, he makes this covenant with. Every one of them that he saved from destruction. Now, notice that this covenant will not expire with Noah but will reach to all his descendants and to all living creatures. He says this in verse 9, Behold, I, am, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants hereafter with every living creature that is, that is with you. So the birds and the cattle and every beast that is with you, all that comes out of the ark. So there's nothing else. It's only those who were safe in the ark. Remember, the ark is that beautiful picture of salvation. All those who are safe, that's who my covenant is with. Now, I love the scene there that everything that comes out. And, and you can, isn't hard to see that there will be a day where God has separated the sheep and the goats. He has sent those who have rejected him to eternal punishment. And all that will be left are his people, his chosen. That's all that will be left. And there's, it's just a bit of a precursor to see how God works. He will judge those who do not come to him through Christ alone. And one day, it will be only those who are protected from judgment. 
Again, you see this loving act of an omniscient God. He knows whose are his. Now, he knows the sinfulness of man, but yet he makes this covenant promise. And we'll see that here in the next section. Is because it doesn't take you long to see that Noah and the sons are not perfect. And yet he makes this great covenant. Second thought, God's sign to his creation. Look at verse 11. I will establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. So the wording of verse 11 clearly marks a limitation to the range of God's covenant. Notice he says this, I shall never again, you shall never again be cut off. There's a word there, we have to figure out what that verb's doing there, by the water of the flood. So it does not say that man will never be cut off again from the earth. It doesn't say that. So his covenant that he's established with man is, I will not judge in this way again. Now I keep referring to this text, but I have not yet taken you there. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3. I keep running out of time, so I pushed it up in my notes. Because I want you to see this. Because there is a similar judgment coming. But this time it is by fire. Judgment from water or a worldwide flood will not be the means that God will cut off, but it does not mean he will not cut off man again someday. Look with me at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. We'll read a little ways here. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following their own lust. Now, whenever the Bible, New Testament particularly uses the word last days, that's any time after the ascension of Christ. So the way we understand that is we're just farther down the road in the last days. You go, well, aren't we worse than we were before? Mm, uh, Not Genesis 6, we already established that. But then think about the early church, how evil it was in the times of the early church. Remember, Apostle Paul had his head chopped off. Peter, who's writing this through the inspiration of the Spirit of God, was hung upside down on a cross. So you can't say it's getting worse. What we have begun to understand is we're farther down the road in those last days here. So Peter says there's going to be, in these last days there will be mockers, will come with their mocking. Peter, Paul, James, the apostles all dealt with this, following after their own lust, saying, where is the promise of his coming? It's a mock. Where's your God now? Well, we've seen that in the scriptures, haven't we? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, now this is a statement, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Now, I love that little statement. One, it takes away from evolution. <laughs> Everything's been going on just like God created. And yet, the mocking is that the Lord hasn't returned. Verse 5, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. So there's that picture of the water was covering the earth and then there was this canopy around it. So the, water, the, the, the world is in the water but out of the water. Kind of teaching there, right? We talked about that in Genesis chapter 1. Verse 6, through which the world at that time was destroyed. So, so he used water out of verse 5 to destroy the world in verse 6. Being flooded with water. Now verse 7. But by his word, the present, right now, these heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. Kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. 
So remember when we said that in, in, in Genesis chapter 9, that that word cut off by water, that there was a limitation to that covenant that he was making. I mean, it doesn't say he's not going to cut man off sometime. No, he is going to cut him off, and this time the Bible says by fire. But verse 8, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, talking to the church here, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day, so time is going to press on. It's long to us, but not to the Lord. He's got his eyes on it, that, and don't don't read more into that. That means this, everything is right before God. He doesn't deal with time like we do. You know, we don't say, well, I was a lifetime waiting for, you know, dinner. Everything is right before him, okay? That's the idea of the statement here. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promises. So if all time is right before him, he's not slow in what he's going to do, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So now, now notice that he uses some, some pronouns here, they're plural, but is patient towards you. He's speaking towards the elect. He's going to bring people in time. He's going to gather them towards himself. He is not a God who takes pleasure in the death of the ungodly. He does bring people to himself, and he brings you to repentance. Now, look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Remember, we're talking about there's another time coming where God is going to cut off life from this earth. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away, be cut off with a roar and elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, now he's going to put some practice to this, some practical Christianity here. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? In other words, if it is true that God said, look, I'm not going to destroy the world by water again, but I am going to destroy it by fire, and you are white-knuckling the things of this world, and he's going to destroy the things of this world, how should that affect your conduct? Ooh, what a good verse. Oh, man, it's so easy to get lost in the things of this world, isn't it? We, we desire things, material things, and, and God is so good. I mean, I don't think anybody in here is homeless. If you are, you should probably come talk to us. We want to help you with something. But most, most everybody has the basic needs of life. God is good. But it's when we hold on to things, Peter says, look, that's not good. Think about this early church. Peter says they're being scattered. It's the dispersion because persecution has hit the church. It's forced them to push out into the all of the remotest places of the world. And he says, don't hold on to things. It's all going to burn. And you will hear non-believers even use that language. It'll all burn someday. And he's reminding us of what our conduct should be. And so when God makes this incredible covenant with mankind and the beast of the field and all of this that I will not cut off. It is a gracious kindness that he won't flood the earth in that way. But it is not only that saying that he's not ever going to judge that way again. He's going to judge. It's just coming with fire. Last couple of verses here, verse 12. Looking for the hastening, the coming of the day of God. So what Peter says is, don't get caught up in this world. Look for his coming. So 
if you're looking for his coming, you are preparing yourself. Uh, Jesus gives that great parable of uh, the virgins who trim their wicks and keep their lamps full of oil. They're longing for the groom who's coming. They're prepared and ready. So he says, now, since you know that there is this destruction going to come to these things that you think maybe are precious, and God says, look, I'm going to wipe all that out. Start looking for him coming. Live lives in anticipation. Paul says that he's going to receive a crown, 2 Timothy chapter 4, but it's not only for him alone, but for all those who are, you remember the phrase? Longing for his return. Do you long for the return of Christ or do you long for the things of this world? And I know young people in here, that's difficult at times, isn't it? Uh, maybe you want to get married and, or, or you're longing for that great job or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with those things. Marriage and work is all from God. Those are all things of God. But if we white-knuckle things and hold on to things in such a way, Peter is saying that is not the way of a godly person. We hold on to things loosely. Knowing that there's a day coming, our Savior's going to return, we're going to be with Him, and there's nothing in this world that will compare to that, so why hold on to it so tightly? Does that make sense? This is where He's challenging us in these areas. Notice, He says that because of this, the heavens, verse middle 12, will be destroyed by burning, the elements will melt within Tichit, but here comes the promise, covenant again, but according to His promise, we are looking forward to new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. That's the opposite of the earth that Noah got off on, on the ark. You're talking about an earth where sin does not have its stranglehold. Someday God will give us a new earth that we'll live on and fellowship on and he'll rule and reign that has not sin upon it. Man, do we long for that earth at times, don't we? Verse 14, Therefore, behold, since you look for these things... It's, it's an understanding, the tense is that you, you're looking, you're, this is what you're doing. Be diligent, now look at this, to be found by him in peace and spotless and blameless. That's our salvation. Be found in Christ. It's such a good question. What are you known for? Are you known for your business practices, your, your athleticism, your, your gifts, your talent. What are you known for? The Bible, Peter's saying, be known for being one found in Jesus. That's what we should be known for. And if you and I can strive by the grace of God to be known as those who are found in Christ, now think about this, the things of the world that he gives us we hang on to loosely and we're good stewards of them. And stewardship doesn't mean like, well, hey, i got to get more stuff to take care of it. It means, wow, this is all God's. I'm just managing it for him. I can't wait to see the owner of it. This is the beautiful thing that God gives throughout the Bible, these great covenants and promises of, of his return and the things he will do. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 9. We'll press on just through the rest of this chapter. Look at verse 12 and 13. 11, not going to cut off by water. We know Peter has said he's going to cut off with fire. Verse 12, though, he says this is a sign of the covenant. So God's sign of his creation here is he's going to place something there as a sign, something that's going to signify this covenant, which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. So this is a, 
a permanent sign while this earth still exists. Whatever God's going to do here is a permanent sign to everyone who comes after Noah. And not just people, but animals. And someone says, well, do you think an animal really cares about a rainbow? I, I don't know that he understands it as mine, but the Bible's saying it's for him as well, that, that beast of the field, that creature. Now look at verse 13. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that a bow will be seen in the cloud. So, so God set a very clear sign of his covenant for not only Noah, but for the entire world and every generation after to realize that God makes promises and keeps them. Isn't this beautiful? This is not to be used for political means or godless means. It is every time we see a rainbow. Yesterday I backed in my driveway. I, looked, I was looking out my mirror. looked up to the east because rainbows always come away from the sun. And there was a huge rainbow. <laughs> I'm, getting, I'm working on this sermon going, oh, thanks, Lord. That's your promise. That's your promise to me. Not only to me, but to my children and their children. It's even a promise to my dog and every other animal that walks on this earth that God will not destroy that way. This is the kindness of God. Look at verse 14. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen within the cloud. So I looked up rainbows a little bit. uh, Wanted to know a little more about them. Um, I have a homeschool wife, so I've heard this before. But this is what we we learn about. And the rainbow is a meteorological phenomena, Wikipedia said. It causes by a reflection and refractions and dispersions of light in the water droplets resulting in a spectrum of light appearing in the sky. It takes the form of multicolor circular arc. The rainbow caused by the sunlight always appears in the section of skies directly away from the sun. What I went on to say was the, the sun hits through a water droplet, reflects off the back of the water droplet, and comes back to you in those colors. That's amazing. One water droplet uh, is, is part of bazillions of water droplets to make the rainbow that I saw yesterday. What an amazing phenomenon that God has done. Now, when Noah came out of the ark, it was probably the first time he witnessed the sun not through the lens of maybe a canopy of water or ice that would have been over the earth. For the first time, he sees the sun and clouds and all of those happen. And now there's this mixture of rain and sun falling on the earth, and God renews this covenant to his creation, and through the sign of the rainbow, he establishes with them again. Now, I got some pictures. There you go. Um, this is from, I think, Ken Ham, or it might have been John Street, tweeted this out the other day, and I, I sent it to uh, Troy, and I said, Troy, can you put those up for me? This is the ark up in Kentucky. Now, this thing is made fairly uh, as accurate as they can possibly be um, on the earth at this time. It's in Kentucky. It, it is a, a beautiful sign, and, and I saw this picture. I thought, well, maybe, maybe, just maybe, when God said in verse 17 here, this is a sign of the covenant which... I have established between me and all of the flesh that is on the earth. God just stuck that thing up behind there. Maybe it looked like that. That building wasn't there. Um, And it wasn't in Kentucky. Uh, (laughs) There's another one, Troy. 
It might have been something like that. Can you imagine this? Six to 10,000 years ago, the first time he's ever seen, he's never seen a rainbow before. There, there wasn't rain on the earth. Do you remember that? Genesis chapter 2 has never rained, so there's no rainbows. There's never been a rainbow. So God sticks this thing in the sky, says this is a covenant between me, you, your children, and every living thing. It's going to be an eternal covenant to show you that I won't cut man off this way. I will never judge again this way. And he's looking at this big boat that's probably a little more beat up after sailing around for 150 days and sitting on, Iraq, on top of Ararat. And there it is, a promise from God. Notice verse 15, he says, I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature on the earth. Never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. This was not simply a recognition, but a renewed commitment of God to keep his promise. Verse 16, when the bow is in the clouds, then I will look down upon it. I thought about this yesterday as I backed in my driveway because I was studying this passage. I said, God, right now you are looking upon this because verse 16 says, when the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it. To remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all the earth that is on the earth. And so God looks at those rainbows. He looks at that and says, wow, I remember I will not ever judge the earth in that way. And verse 17 is possibly, maybe this is possibly where that bow all of a sudden just appeared. Look with me at Genesis, uh, excuse me, Psalms 104. I was reading this the other day, and I've always kind of linked this to a creation psalm. But as I've been studying the flood, it might work just as well for uh, the flood. Let me read, read with me just for a little bit here. Verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God. You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out the heavens like a tent and curtain. I, I don't know that Noah could have seen the heavens before the flood like, like this psalm would record it. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. Uh, pre-flood, I'm not sure uh, what clouds would have been like because of the canopy around the earth. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messenger, a flaming fire of ministers. Now look at this. He establishes the earth upon its foundation so that it will not totter forever uh, or ever. Forever or, or ever. So the, the earth is fixed. It's not going to move and throw us into some kind of uh, catastrophic event. You cover it with a deep as a garment, and the waters were standing above the mountains. And at your rebuke, they fled. Now, I think this has a creative order, but think about this in the flood. There was a point where God brought the waters to decease on the earth, to descend back into the ground off the earth. And so at some point, God had to rebuke those waters to send them back. And in the sound of your thunder, they hurried away, and the mountains rose, and the valleys sank. And that's very interesting, because most uh, creationists believe there wasn't high mountains and deep valleys in a pre-flood world. Most of that, they believe, got shaped from the flood. And now Grand Canyons and mountain ranges and uh, continents getting pushed around, and mountains getting shoved up all over the place. And you can kind of see that. As I read this this week, I thought, wow, I could see the mountains arise from the flood, and the valleys sink down. 
to the place where you establish them. You set the boundary that they may not pass over, speaking of the water, so they will not return and cover the earth. And so he establishes how far the seas can go. And then, of course, he goes on. He sends forth springs in the valley. They flow between the mountains and, and, and the water the beasts of the field drink from them. So an interesting psalm to kind of think about after a a post-flood world. All that water had to go back down and create the valleys and and the mountains that we have now. Third thought, as we go back to your text, um, in verse 18, is God's curse, God curses the future enemies of Israel. And this is where I want to spend a little bit of time tonight because I kind of left off here last week wanting to explain this narrative a little bit here. In verse 18, the narrative wastes no time to tell us that Ham is the father of the Canaanites. Look at this. Look at verse 18. The, son of Noah, the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Now, there's a couple of things there. The sons that came out of the ark, because he's going to live many more years and have many more sons. So he's identifying exactly who these sons are that are going to populate, repopulate the world. All right? So he says, the sons that came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. And then he says this in this verse. And Ham was the father of Canaan. Now why would he put that in there? Right in that middle of this scene where God is setting, establishing his covenant. He's, they're coming off the ark. All these animals, that he is, this whole group that he has chosen, animals and people. Why would he put that there? Look just a little farther in verse 22. Ham, the father of Canaan. Twice he names him of that. So remember the setting that we're talking about. Who's writing this? Who was first hearing this? The nation of Israel is about to walk into the land of giants and depose the Canaanites of the land that was flowing with milk and honey. And milk and honey, that term, when you're a little kid, you're kind of thinking about what that looks like. But it means it's a very, very fertile ground. Anything that eats well, milks well. Anything that blooms well is producing uh, pollen and, and bees are working. It's, it's always a good scene if your, your land is acting like that. But notice how many times he says that. He is the father of the Canaanites, the father of the Canaanites. And we remember the, saint, the, the setting here. The original hearers of this is the nation of Israel as they're at the door to the land of Canaan. Now, verse 19. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the whole earth was populated. Pretty amazing. And then Noah began farming and planting a vineyard. So there's a repopulation. There's a cultivating of the earth. They're subduing it as God had told, them, told Adam. And again, in the end of 8, in the first of 9, he says that he says, Subdue the earth, fill, it, fill the earth just as God commanded. But verse 21 becomes a problem, Right? Noah, he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Now, don't forget this father of Canaan, okay, because we're going to tie all this together here. But I want to make some points clear here. Both Old Testament and New Testament clearly define drunkenness as sin. So there are many commentaries that try to work around this. I read one that said, well, uh, Noah clearly did not gauge the... Uh, concentration of alcohol under the new heavens and new earth that he was now in. Well, drunkenness is drunkenness. and The Bible speaks that it is sinful to be drunk. It does not say you can't drink. It says don't be drunk. 
And usually stupid is the cellmate of drunkenness. And problems come from this. And so Noah's failure here to maintain self-control left him in a very compromised situation, didn't it? So this is, the, this is the people, this is how gracious God is. This is the people that God has made a covenant with, that he would not wipe them out, not cut them off with a flood again. There comes a problem here, verse 22. Ham comes back to the center. This is the youngest son. Ham, the father of Canaan, of Canaan saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Jephthah took a garment, laid it upon their shoulders, walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father, and their, faces, and their faces were turned away so they did not see their father's nakedness. Now, there are many here that believe there was something very perverse that took place. Um, and they base it upon the claims of the instructions from the law in Leviticus 18 through 20. Now, if you ever read Leviticus 18 through 20, it's almost two full chapters of upon the, the, the term nakedness and what happens, how God judges strictly those who abuse that. And it's everything from incest to homosexuality to all kinds of things there, how God uh, sees that as an abomination. So there are some that read into this that maybe some kind of incest took place here or something with Noah's wife or something like that was so bad that he would curse this way. But there's, there's no reasonable support from, from the text that, that any notion of this perversity took place. And, and, and it's an interesting read, but I don't think it's there. However, Israel took the law of Leviticus 18 and 20 very serious in the curses that came with breaking these moral societal commands. They, they took that very seriously. So those associated with such abuse were to be cut off immediately and their land was to be de uh, deemed defiled. So now let's put this all together. In the nation of Israel, um, Moses is writing this. He's writing to this nation. He's about ready to go into the land of Canaan. Think through this with me. They, they start to read this. They hear Moses reading this to them. And upon the reading of the birth of the Canaanites... Israel would have gained courage and strength to drive them from the land. It's so interesting that he says, why, did, why does he keep bringing up Canaan here? You have to deal with that because you realize, wait a minute, don't get lost just in the narrative and the story. Remember hermeneutically who wrote this, who was written to, and what the goal of the original writing was. The original writing was written to the nation to be strengthened that they had a God who can wipe out the world. And, it, and written to a nation to let people know, let them know what God thinks about sin. And to let people know that, that immoral sin God hates as he hates all sin. And it, it really is this preparatory work that God is doing on the hearts of this nation as they're getting ready to go depose a very wicked group of people. Remember, they sent spies, they came back and said, hey, the land's great, but we're like grasshoppers. And they rejected God's word. They went and marched around the wilderness for 40 years till all those people died off. Now all the warriors and leaders that got them that far are all dead. You have all the sons and daughters of them who have not seen much war yet. And Moses says, let me tell you what God does. Let me tell you what God thinks of those who live immoral lives. And he strengthens them. And, and it's one of the ways we understand how important this text is when we see the nation of Israel working through uh, lands that uh, God had promised 
to them. So Shem, Ham, and Japheth were sinners like their fathers. But there's a clear difference in how sin is handled. So I want to talk about this just a little bit practically here to learn from this as well. Where two sons saw the sin and shame of the deed, they did not maybe look upon it, but they saw the sin and shame of the deed that Ham did, the other magnified it. Now, the way I think many people can get their mind around this act is that there's a difference between the pleasure of sin and the fear of sin. So you have three boys. One boy discovers pornography, laughs at it, looks at it, runs to show other boys this. The other boys don't want to be a part of it. Now they're, they've seen this and they want to react to it. They don't want to react the way the other boy did. You can kind of see, this is what often happens. I remember this happening to myself as a young boy. And you're going, I don't want to see this. It's, it's pulling on my flesh. I don't want to be a part of this. One rejoices in it. And this is what we have to be careful. And, and now we're talking about some practicality that's in this text. There are those who rejoice in sin and want to share it with others. And there's those that... We know our flesh, we're careful with it, we don't trust it. When we see it, we want to run from it. <laughs> and I think that's an example here that can be learned from that. And I, I think what this type of sin does, it exposes the true heart. And God saw this. In fact, verse 24, however this was, Noah woke up from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. And immediately, notice this, he curses Canaan. He said, he said, cursed be Canaan. Well, Canaan wasn't even around. Cursed be Canaan and, the servants of serv- and a servant of servants, and he shall be to his brothers. And so the shift from Ham to his descendants demonstrates that Moses is defending the legitimacy of Israel's conquest of Canaanites here. This is, this is sinful tendencies. I mean, how many times have you been dealing with a non-believer who comes up and says, yeah, I've read the Old Testament, and man, God just kills people in the Old Testament. And you, you have to be ready to defend the wages of sin is death. You have to be able to defend that. But we also have to understand how godless and pagan these nations were. There was complete rejection. And you can't hold up Israel very long because it isn't long before they become these people. And what does God do with them? Puts the full weight of his judgment upon them and sends them to captivity with the death of many, many Israelites as well. So here, back in this scene, we see the shift go from Ham to his descendants as Noah sits up and says, cursed is the descendants. And Israel now, as Moses is writing this, there's this, there's this legitimate, let's, let's go, God's with us. They knew the gravity. They knew the gravity of Leviticus 18 through 20. Of what God thinks about immorality. Now, notice um, that God gives this nation of Israel really a theological basis for this conquest. This is against God. And the descendants of Ham have received the sentence of judgment of the sin of their father And when we get into Genesis 10 next time together, we'll start to see what those descendants are and and we'll trail and we can link them to most of those nations that were going to be deposed there. Now, I want you to look at the last few 
verses. Um, verse 28 um, and 29. And this, this is God's blessing of life, marriage, and family. Now Noah lived 300 years, 350 years after the flood. So all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Wow, what a long life. 